0: Welcome to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Evan Lorenz, filling in for Jim Grant, who's out temporarily with uh, laryngitis. At the dials is Harrison Waddill. Joining me is Phil Grant, the publisher of Almost Daily Grants. And today we have a special guest, Mario Sabelli. Mario is the founder and managing member of Marathon Partners Equity Management, which is an investment firm that specializes in small and mid-cap equities. Prior to Marathon, Mario cut his chops at Gabelli Asset Management, Prudential Securities, and Robati and Company. Before that, he got a Bachelor of Science from Binghamton University. Mario, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I first came across you on Twitter on discussing small caps. One user had posted, there is absolutely zero reason to own small caps anywhere. I get this as consensus, but probably is for a reason at this point. To which you replied, now that I know, tongue in cheek, an undervalued small cap is like a tree falling alone in the forest. No one hears it and no one cares.
1: Yeah, that's right. It, it was a uh, a bit of a... Um Attempted a joke, probably a little bit too dark of a humor. Well, the problem I had is so many people took you seriously. Uh, Sentiment in small caps is
0: horrible right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I I started the fund in 1997, and I think this is the third time that I consider small caps uh, broadly undervalued. You know, I think post-2000, post the dot-com bubble burst was a period of time, you know, say March of 2000, all the way up through the great financial crisis. And then the post-GFC... 2009 through about 2013 as well. You know, I think it was a really attractive, interesting time where a lot of value could be added. I rank this one close to the early 2000s um, as far as level of attractiveness. That's one thing I wanted to put in context. So year to date, the S&P
0: 500's rallied by 19% as we're recording. The Russell 2000 is up just 6%, so it's trailing by 13 percentage points. But this is continuing the long string of underperformance that has seen small caps uh, lag the blue chip average by 81% since uh, 2016. That's a lot of underperformance. Can you compare and contrast those other two periods that you've experienced in your career and how this one stacks up, how it's different?
1: I, uh, I definitely can't quote like the returns, you know, of those versus, you know, large versus small at those, those prior periods. You know, I, I know in the early 2000s, you know, I think, you know, we were up, our fund was up every year, starting from 2000 onward, you know, up until the great financial crisis, you know, and the S&P clearly, clearly wasn't. The Russell did pretty well also relative to the S&P as far as up-down
2: uh, years would go. And now a quick message from our sponsor. Since 2007, SRS Aquiem has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquiem was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. And working with SRS Acquiem means that you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Acquiem to optimize how their deals get done. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquiem.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com.
0: How about this? Um, I believe I read in one of your recent letters that if this bout of underperformance continues into the first quarter of next year, it will in fact be one of the longest on records. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's right. In uh, early 2024, if small caps continue to underperform, uh, I think the prior record is 7.4 years. And there's a little nuance to how that's measured. Um, that was trailing five-year performance. Um, and it was using, I think, CRISPR data. So that, you know, this was kind of not an index per se, but this was a, uh, you know, a category of uh, small and mid and large caps. And on a trailing five-year basis, it is, it is approaching the record. Because large cap
0: stocks have outperformed for so long, people have taken that for granted now. And there's a lot of arguments for why that outperformance should continue. So can I throw out a couple of the bull arguments for the blue chips and maybe ask for how this might be wrong or how might this be misleading? One of the arguments I hear is, that the biggest stocks today, like Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple, are just better companies than big companies in prior years. And therefore, these companies are the ones you want to own, and they'll continue outperforming, going out to the horizon. Kind of the trees grow to the uh, sky argument.
1: Yeah, well, I, I do think that one's interesting. I think there is some uh, ability to push back on that, which is how do you measure you know, the, the best of the current crop versus the best... Of the past crops, and I, you know, to me, I'm hard pressed. Is that like return on equity? Like certainly, companies of the past had super high returns on equity, and had dominant technologies, and dominated the conversation, and had lots of growth potential, and all sorts of interesting things. So, um, I think there's an argument there that these that these companies are kind of better than the ones in the past. But I also think that it's it's possible they may not be. But, you know, I, uh, I think about like, you know, yes, there's good and bad companies, but there's also good and bad prices. And after such a long period of dominance, to me, it's obvious that you have to look uh, in, in, in other places to, to, to find real value. I, I just don't think, you know, the incremental piece of information on mega cap, you know, uh, mega cap tech, big tech. Is, it's baked in it's priced in but I, I've certainly heard that argument you know uh, I've heard uh, small caps are lower quality uh, yes they have uh, more leverage that they cannot make the investments uh, related to AI so the uh, AI benefits will accrue to the biggest of the big and not necessarily anyone else um, they they' uh, big tech has dominated the conversations taken a lot of oxygen out of the room and um, you know I think small caps are a legitimate asset class and certainly are, are you know the contrarian investor has to be thinking and scratching their head saying hey there there might be something here you know after 7 years massive outflows from small caps it's just you know it's it's a legitimate
2: place to look so uh, just to to that to that point the run that big tech has, has been on and, and their the there's extremely impressive revival this year um, you, you look at that, and you look at, at the, the sort of the, the relentless uh, inflows of, of passive uh, you know passive funds, and the and the growth of passive um, the the secular growth of passive uh, investment strategies. How do you account for that or is that sort of part and parcel with what you were just saying vis-a-vis, you know, there's no, there's no bad stocks, but only bad prices. Sorry, I just saying. how do I account for? How do you think of, of, of the emergence of passive investing and, and, and its role in perhaps um, opening up this valuation gap between the the mega caps tech stocks in, in the, in the, in the market cap weighted S and P 500 versus the, the small caps, which are, which have been forgotten. I mean, I know that passive flows have come way out of, of small caps over the past few years. Yeah.
1: You know, to me, I view it, it's, a, it's a cyclical phenomenon where, uh, you know, a- active management has a, at times, uh, more difficult time adding value and other times uh, less difficulty. And, you know, I think we're on the other side of a period of time where, you know, where active management, I mean, it's, come, it's become sort of a, a dirty word right now. And the, f- the phone flows are kind of reflecting that. And that's after a long period of time. For us, you know, I think it's, we really started having, you know, some, some difficulty in, in adding value starting in 2014. Um, I think it really got going, you know, post a uh, great financial crisis and, you know, it's picked up steam. And um, you think about it after so many years, it's being reinforced over and over and over and over again. But that period of time when small caps, you know, going back, you know, and you can all these things go in cycles, you can go back even further. But if you kind of went back to when, when I've been doing it, starting in 1997, and my first job was in 1990, you know, there, there, the, the period that our fund did, you know, exceptionally well in the early 2000s, and of course, that just that followed up the late 90s, where there was a period of extreme optimism towards the largest uh, companies of the time, like Home Depot was trading at 70 times earnings. Merck, GE, all those companies, Dell had big, big valuations. Of course, that that created the setup where we kind of then prospered, kind of from 2000, you know, all the way to you know 2007 or so. Then kind of had to deal with the with the next crisis. So all these things go in cycles. I mean, I, I have no doubt about that. And you know, I think this one's getting long in the tooth. You know, 15 years of of reinforcing. Biggest of the big, the big companies are great, you know, all that. You, Warren Buffett owns Apple, like, yeah, I've that, that's another one I hear uh, relative to, you know, w- why smalls will remain, you know, uh, the, the laggard versus large, you know. And some of these, you know, some of these things, are, you know, they're, they're good reasons as well.
0: Warren Buffett also has been an owner of IBM, which is less successful and Microsoft also is one of the biggest companies in 2000. And it was probably even more successful back then because it had a bigger stranglehold on kind of the PC market than it does today. But still, uh, I think it was by 2011 or 2012, Microsoft had been so derated that it was trading at a 10 times forward multiple. You could have bought Microsoft in like 2011 or 2012 at a 10 times forward multiple, which is just amazing to me.
1: Yeah, we, you know, our expertise is in smaller and mid-sized companies, but, you know, we, we have permission for our investors to kind of go anywhere and in 2012, for the first time, 2011, 2012, we did start buying large cap companies. We bought Walmart, um, we bought McDonald's, we bought Microsoft, uh, we bought Google, um, we, we bought a number of them, uh, Apple, and Apple X Cash was, you know, at, at a very low multiple, single single digit kind of PE. And it, it was an awkward thing for, for me to do. I think we had, I don't know, high teens percentage of our fund in large caps at, the, at that time, but that was... that was where the bargains were. And, and I guess if I was a, a better investor, I would have been like, okay, like all in, you know, don't think about small caps at all. Um, I just think that it's the opposite story right now. So I think that the market's coming around to the to the area that we will have, you know, we have some expertise in and a lot of experience in and trying to sift our way through these, you know, this vast jungle of, of smaller companies.
0: A second ago, you laid out one of the other reasons why people say small cap is cheap and deserves to be, which is that it's junky. It's, it's has a high proportion of companies that lose money. But I know that last time you and I spoke about a month and a half ago, you actually laid out a very good rationale for why that may be not the headwind that a lot of people think it is, which is that companies are living vibrant things and they respond to incentives.
1: You know, that's right. I think, you know, historically, you could look at it again in a cyclical phenomenon where the components of the Russell 2000, you know, on a, on a company basis, on a percentage-wise, or market cap uh, weighted basis, that number swings around. What percentage of the companies are unprofitable can swing wildly, way more wildly than the S&P 500? And think about it. You know, for a lot of companies, I'd say smaller companies, it's we're coming up on 30 months of capital being more expensive. And they react, and they change, and they try harder and we have several companies in our portfolio that we think are on the, you know, cutting edge of getting to, you know, not EBITDA profitability, but gap profitability. And when you do that, this is how you see on an individual basis, you see it start swinging the the indices. So I think the percentage of companies in the Russell 2000 is likely to head north, despite, you know, potential, you know, are we in a recession right now, or recessionary period, or is there one coming? And that could, that could change rather dramatically. That doesn't, occur in the s p 500 nearly
0: as much and when you had spoken to grants in october while we were writing an article about small caps you mentioned one such company that is losing money now it may be on the path towards making money but as it's kind of making that transition investors reevaluate and i think the stock is almost doubled if you don't want to talk about that uh, i'd love to talk about one example where this is a company that on the path towards profitability and has a good shot at becoming you know a, a good cash flow
1: generating entity. Yeah. You know, two that I would kind of have in that bucket currently one, w- which we did discuss, and I think you uh, mentioned it in the publication of Zometry. Um, another one is called Eventbrite. Zometry is a marketplace of, uh, um, for non-skewable items, unique things that can only be manufactured. They can't be bought on Amazon. So you think job shops and machine tool shops, any any cluster of manufacturing in the U.S. has a number of smaller mom and pop uh, job shops in the area to support what they do. So there's great difficulty in um, buyers and sellers connecting in this marketplace. And Zometry essentially allows them to find each other very efficiently.
0: So, so the, instead of like buying a wrench, you're trying to buy something that you need like a custom CNC machine to cut out the metal, assemble it, get a welder to put it together and get it to a factory floor that needs that vital piece of equipment that's custom made for that factory
1: in order for that factory to produce whatever widgets it makes. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. And it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating market because kind it has very uh, some classic marketplace attributes to it. You have kind of a, 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 a large and long tail uh, of buyers that need these kinds of parts to run their business. And you have a very fractured um, base of suppliers that, uh, generally speaking, are smaller businesses that supply these items to the buyers. And they have a very hard time finding each other. So at any given time, you could have excess capacity you know, uh, outside of Detroit because the auto business is, is uh, slowing or in, in Indiana because the RV business is slowing. There's less capacity somewhere else, maybe, you know, in the oil patch. And, you know, typically uh, a, a buyer of a very specific part in California would have, you know, have no chance of finding uh, the job shop in Indiana that on Thursday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. actually has an opening to make that part exactly right. So geometry adds a tremendous amount of marketplace uh, value to the marketplace and they're just at the door of profitability. They're going to be break even on an EBITDA basis in Q4. Um, but in, you know, in general, I I think you know I think the, the bid ask right now on on growth companies is you know if they're fast growing you shouldn't be you know, uh, very demanding of gap profitability you know tomorrow. I think this Zometry uh, is an example of a fast growing company. That I think is, you know, as long as they're scaling towards profitability, that makes a lot of sense. But their core marketplace business is growing in the high 30s, low 40s. You know, in an environment, you know, this is not a great environment for industrial part buying. Like there's recession, recessionary out there. It's it's, it's not like business is great. So they're they're growing, uh, gaining a lot of market share. Uh, and that tells you that the service they're offering is exceptional.
0: And just to put it in context of the mov- environment we're in, the Institute for Supply Management's um, PMI for manufacturing has been uh, below fifty, which indicates a contraction for thirteen consecutive months. That's actually the longest string of contractionary readings since uh, two thousand one, two thousand two. But one other thing I'd like to hit on Zometry, not that I'm touting the stock or anything, but you had said earlier that part of the bear case against small cap stocks is they can't participate in kind of AI, which is, you know, the biggest fad that we're in at the moment. But if I'm not mistaken, Zometry actually uses AI in order to offer surety of price to customers. Because when you have all these custom parts, one of the things you have to do is RFP the product out to like three or four different machine shops so you can provide their like the the right quality, the right product. But if I'm not mistaken, Zometry actually uses artificial intelligence to price it out itself and offer like a surety of price to buyers which actually reduces some of the friction in the market. So small companies can use cutting edge technology.
1: Absolutely. They can use it. They can benefit from it. You know, they're gonna, there's going to be vendors, of course, that sell it so they can buy it and there'll be a competitive set looking to sell it. And if you can use it in your business, take out costs, you know, all that makes sense. So it's, it's a great little situation. You know, it came public, I think, at 40, $44 in, to great fanfare. And it was growing, you know, very rapidly early on. And then, you know, Growth rate comes down, you know, uh, the markets change, the world's changed, you know, and here it was trading at $12 or $13 with a pretty good balance sheet not long ago. We, we love finding things like that. But that was like a
0: 2021 IPO back when the cost of capital was zero and people prioritize growth at all costs.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I was thinking about it. The There's a lot of bad parenting in the, you know, class of 20 and 21 IPOs. And some of them, you know, some of them will never recover. Some of them won't. Some of them, you know, have, have spent the money uh, poorly. They don't have a management team that's focused on long-term value creation. But others, and you know, these are the ones that we're look, looking for and some of the ones I mentioned today hopefully will, will, will make it. Other ones, you know, they've been in the process of transitioning for over two years and, you know, Zometry is one, one that's doing it. They've had two rifts this year. Uh, they're, they're sprinting towards that profitability and I think I saw a Goldman study at one point, you know, sometime over the last, last 18 months. But the most rewarding thing to do in t- growth tech investing is to find a company that is losing money that can transition to profitability in the downturn. That's versus you know an unprofitable company that stays unprofitable, you know, limited upside on what you can do there, or a profitable one that you know stays profitable throughout and comes out profitable. It's really those in transition, and I, you know, I I put Zometry in the camp of the company that you know absolutely has the potential to do that and this other one uh, eventbrite which is kind of like a ticket master um, for smaller events um could you walk us through maybe
0: eventbrite or another one just to illustrate kind of the the value that's in store for investors who are willing to do the work and buy something besides just an index to uh, to try to capitalize on this value
1: yeah you know one um, that that I just think it, it and over the past two weeks, it, it kind of blew up. I think I mentioned last time we talked was a company called Doc Martens, which is a, a boot shoe manufacturer in the UK. And this was a um, class of 21 IPO as well. And it's come it's come crashing down. Now, these boots have been around since like World War II, you know, and I think um, punk rockers in the UK kind of brought them out and turned them from like a working class boot into kind of a cultural icon. I, I think 80% of what they sell 85 percent is is the color black it's such a well-established franchise it's trading at a very low multiple and you know here this here this you could I guess you can buy a Birkenstock or a golden Goose or some other kind of really hot IPO the high valuation growing better or you can look at some of these things that have been you know tossed out in, in the garbage and I, I think this one's a gem it's a really nice little business
0: yeah um, as somebody who uh, went to high school in the 90s I remember it being quite fashionable among certain groups yeah
1: I you know look it it, it the lack of fashion comes in and out of fashion as well. So they they make the same boot that's called, you know, the continuity product with the black and yellow stitching. And they've been doing that for an awfully long time. So, you know, I guess even that ebbs and flows in popularity, even though it kind of looks the same each and every year. So, you know, are they managing through a bit of a down cycle in the U.S. in popularity? Yes. But they also, like they said, they they grew like 40% in Japan. They're all, it's a global brand.
0: Is it growing overall, or just uh, does it have a little trouble in the U.S.? Uh,
1: well, overall, it's 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 growing. Uh, the U.S. has kind of been a been an issue recently, and you know, I think the worst footwear category this fall has been has been boots. It's been a you know warm season, and of course, consumers also have less money to spend as well. So you know, they're going through a a, a bit of a down draft, but. It's trading about five times EBITDA, maybe 10 or 11 times earnings. It's got a very good balance sheet. It uh, is buying back stock and it has a control shareholder, Primera, uh, UK uh, buyout um, firm. So, you know, I really like the management team here. I think the senior leadership is exceptional. And it's just really hard for me to envision that this company kind of stays independent, such a niche brand, such a well-defined brand that's been around for so long. gets to stay independent kind of indefinitely. Or at least trade at these these low valuations indefinitely. There's probably some something that's coming eventually, and in the meantime, you know that you know even though they're a small small uh, company with a limited float, you know they decide to repurchase shares, and I I take you know that's a I give that a thumbs up.
2: Um, so the, I, I couldn't help but notice that both companies you mentioned were sort of busted 2021 IPOs. If A is uh, is that is that a category that you that you've been looking at sort of overtly or is that just kind of a coincidence that that uh that these are the two names you feature and b um when that happens uh when when you do see a you know a name that, that debuts to a lot of fanfare and a, perhaps a fancy price and um then gets sort of checked back to reality is do you know, I imagine there's a, a lot of turnover among shareholders too which which could um, you know is, is that a factor and in, in, in if so how, how much of that, would, of that would you say it is yeah
1: well i've always been a fan of um Orphan IPOs, and I think this goes back to an old fund I remember. It was like I think it was Paul Stevens. He had this orphans fund or something like that many, many years ago. So I just think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting area to look for inefficiencies in the marketplace. So like a company that came out uh, to great fanfare and somehow disappoints. And you know, and, and maybe there is something to the sizzle. This is how I found Netflix many many years ago. It was kind of a broken IPO at one point, and kind of showed up in in Los Gatos, and you know, got to uh, hang out with um, uh, Reed Hastings, and still to this day, probably the smartest CEO I've ever met. So it's just a, it's just an area that I've found over time that I've been able to mine uh, pr- pretty well. So in general, I, uh, I I do gravitate toward things like that, but it's not it's not the only thing we do. And some of the other companies in my head are are, are are not class of twenty one IPOs. When we've had bounce of underperformance that are this long, seven years or plus, what's kind of the
0: forward returns for small caps after they kind of fall back in favor again? Is is it material?
1: Yeah, it's exceptional, and the, that first year tends to be the the biggest year of outperformance. But the one, three, and five year numbers are tend to be extremely good, um, and you know that's uh, that, that's going back for over uh, an awfully long period of time, and it makes all the sense in the world, of course, right? You know you. Small caps are a legitimate asset class. They've been under pressure for a long period of time. All the asset managers that uh, specialize in them have been in net outflows for an extended period of time. Of course, there's going to be some better bargains there. And and just going back to past
0: periods uh, when there was kind of this transition in the market. So you started your your fund in uh, 97, correct? Yep. So you're starting right around the time where uh, Greenspan uttered uh, irrational exuberance. You went through uh, the vertiginous uh, NASDAQ ascent. And small caps started outperforming. I, I believe right around the uh, the o one o two recession, which wasn't really a good time for the economy overall. Was there any kind of catalyst that set off, or was there anything that I, I guess tipped off the the the, the turn towards uh, small cap outperformance? Yeah,
1: that, that that's a tough one. I think um, sometimes these trends just start on their own weight. There's there's no you know there's no gun that goes off and you know, when small caps start uh, outperforming and large caps start underperforming. You know, uh, you know, at the time, if you think about everything that was going on, we had a corporate profit recession. We had a, uh, a, a great fear about real estate on, uh, in California. Uh, we had 9-11, um, we had oil prices doubling over a rel- relatively short period of time. There was all sorts of things that were, you know, you know troubling at the time. It does remind me of today, like all, all sorts of everything going on in the world today. So, you know, there's never, it, 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 with hindsight, it, it, it seems like a, boy, that, boy, the it was really easy back then. You know, that was like, um, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. It, 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 it never is. There, there were many things to worry about back then. And of course, a lot of the small caps we bought back then at very low valuations, they also had, you know, limited prospects for growth. And we had to do a lot of work to sift through and find the which, you know, which ones were more valuable, which ones more interesting. Um, but, you know, it, in general, it, 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 was a, it was a difficult period. It was a recessionary environment. There was lots of things to be worried about. What really happened is that small caps just got too darn cheap. Um, and when they got too darn cheap, what you, you start getting crossover buyers. You get share repurchases. Um, you get buyouts. You get strategic mergers. You get go privates. All sorts of things like that. And I think, you know, this trend has started. You're, you, you're not having, it's not some big supply of IPOs coming in. So the amount of shares that represent smaller companies is is set to shrink. And it shrunk in the early 2000s for multiple years um, until it didn't anymore, until the valuation supported companies, private companies, like, hey, you know, it's time to sell some shares again and go out. So, you know, I think this time, it, this time it will probably be no different. If I had to guess, there won't be a single catalyst. Um, they'll just start doing better. And when they start doing better, because they started off at such a low valuation, relatively speaking, uh, especially, that... Um, they'll outperform you know one day carters maker of you know infant and toddler um, apparel is going to outperform apple it really is it's going to kick the crap out of apple at one point people can't imagine that today you know it's trading at 10 or 11 times earnings it's a really good business yes i have to worry about growth you have to worry about growth with with apple as yeah. well uh, exactly. apple's had four <laughs> consecutive quarters of negative
0: sales growth and it's trading over 30 times earnings and just as a, a refresher prior to um, covid Apple hadn't grown sales for I think four or five years and traded basically a little discount to the market multiple. So like was it like 16 times like that? So Apple's had an extraordinary re-rating post-COVID and now it seems like the, you know, the the thing to buy. But prior to that, it was kind of a lowly rated company because it got almost all of its profit from one com- uh, product, which is the iPhone.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I, you know, I think the in the in the early 2000s, a lot of these companies they, you know, they just had these eye popping valuations and, you know, that that was easy to spot. I think it's more difficult to to spot a bubble now if, if there is one in, in big tech. But one thing I just think is so, so challenging. They're just lugging around such massive amounts of market cap, you know, to grow to grow at a consistent rate off these massive market caps is, is difficult. It's exceedingly difficult. So I, to me, it's, it seems like a certainty, you know, that that big tech will have to grind down on valuation over the next decade. It seems it, it, it's inevitable.
2: I mean, the, weight, the weighting of the top, you know, f- pick your number, top five, top ten, it's unprecedented. Um, you know, as a a share of the S&P. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Everything seems so clear in retrospect. And just going back to the Microsoft example, when Microsoft was trading at 10 times forward earnings in either 2011 or 2012, you had to buy Microsoft when Steve Ballmer was CEO and Steve Ballmer was buying Nokia, which I, as a shareholder at Microsoft at the time, actually dumped my shares because I thought this is the stupidest acquisition in the world and I couldn't stand looking at the stock. And when you have people puke stock because they just can't stand looking at it, that's the point where the valuation just becomes so cheap that it's not a catalyst in itself, but it kind of is close to a catalyst by itself.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's, it's a it's a funny story. I think, like you know, I said I, we, I think we bought Apple, you know, eight times, um, eight eight times earnings x cash, mm-hmm. and you know, you could have you could have drank from a fire hose, which is a little bit weird for a small cap investor to be doing on it. Um, the notion that 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 multiple is kind of off the table for an extended period of time, to you know, that that strikes me as silly. It really does.
0: I also like the fact that uh, one, one of the arguments for large cap over small cap is large cap companies tend to be better managed because they're larger companies. Because they're not tied to one specific geography, they tend not to have kind of the economic vicissitudes that a small company that maybe is just focused on the Southeast is. But as you pointed out, small cap outperformance uh, after the dot-com era was in a pretty bad economic period. So it, the argument that you don't want to own small cap now just because the economy is going down, it doesn't necessarily hold up historically. It's not saying that they will outperform going forward, but it's not necessarily an argument against it.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know what, the the reality of the situation could be a lot of the companies that we own have pretty low valuations. It could be that they're not going to earn as much as we think in 24. And really the market kind of is ahead of us. And we're, you know, we'll be a little bit surprised that way to the negative. But the valuations on many of them are so low that I think it doesn't, It doesn't kind of matter. That's already baked into the price. So I think there could be, you know, a situation where essentially, you know, is it possible that the market is even looking past the current kind of recessionary environment um, and looking forward beyond that? So, you know, you've seen in some companies that they've reported numbers that were below expectations, um, but the share price didn't go down. Can, can you give an example of that? Not off the top of my head. <laughs> okay, we'll cut that. Um, are there any other examples uh,
0: that you think do a good job of kind of illustrating just the opportunity that's on hand for people who are willing to roll up their sleeves, do work, and buy something beyond an index?
1: Oh, I, I, I have a bunch of names. You know, one of our, one of our bigger positions right now is uh, a company called Beckley, which is the world's lar- largest tequila producer. Um, they own uh, Jose Cuervo. They own 1800. Um, those are the the two biggest brands uh, that they have. They, you know, I call them, it's kind of an orphan company on an orphan exchange, which is, you know, the worst of all worlds. It's a, it trades on the uh, Mexican bourse and it's, it's the lowest price, lowest valuation, major spirits, uh, company in the world. And they had this massive tailwind coming their way. The, the main cost input for uh, tequila is Blue Weber Agave. And Blue, Blue Weber Agave went through an epic spike that is, has begun unwinding and has been crashing down. So here we're coming in at, you know, trough valuation, which is probably 11 or 12 times uh, EBITDA. And their largest cost input, you know, in the process of crashing you know, as high as 25 or 26 pesos per kilo recently down to 15 or 16 pesos per kilo and continuing to head south. And that's a super interesting one for me. And that's kind of a a low float trades south of the border uh, company that not a lot of people know of, but, you know, a lot of people know of the brands. um, Is there anything else? You know, one of the things that's interesting and I've, I've heard it from multiple people, and that's how you and I actually spoke the first time, which is, you know, you're You're hearing from some friends, some people, maybe some other lunatics like me that small caps are interesting. And so what do you do? You run a screen. And what do, you, what do you run a screen on? Oh, give me um, small cap companies below X, you know, X market cap. Give me high returns in equity. Give me limited debt. Give me really good growth. Like you're creating this wish list. I've just had multiple people, including you, kind of say that to me. And it, 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 it's kind of funny because I went back and looked at a lot of my older investments. And you know every single one, like there were lots of great investments and whatnot. But there's compromises just like there is with anything. There's a compromise on Apple right now. The valuation super high. Well, uh, on these other companies, like Doc Martens, like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe it won't grow. There's consumer exposure, this and that. Yeah, but the valuation's low. Right. And that, and there's a lot of investment too, uh, to being a public company, you know, potentially someone else buys that, fits into someone's portfolio and they get a good return on that. So, you know, there's, there's always compromises, but it's just kind of ironic because uh, I, I have heard that from multiple people. Oh, I, I am more than hundred
0: percent guilty of that because when we first spoke, I ran exactly that screen. I was looking for the highest quality small cap company that has zero economic vicissitude relative to like, you know, the business cycle. And I found a very, very small list of companies. And when we spoke, I realized that's falling victim to, um, you can either, uh, a friend of our publication.
1: Phrased it as can have good news or good prices, but not both. And I was trying to have my cake and eat it too. Yeah, and 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 I think that's that's the way a lot of people come at it. The reality is, you know, you have to dig in and do hard work and roll up your sleeves and ask a lot of questions and really get to know these companies. And and sometimes, you know, the screens miss things. Obviously, you could have divisions that are kind of more interesting, like you know, Zometry, for instance. For instance, um, it 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 didn't present itself very easily um, on on growth rate. They had a business that they shut down. So they had a business that, you know, was contributing negative growth year over year. And then even within their core business, their marketplace business, you know, they had a significant contraction in average selling prices, which really is about delivery time. So you can save money. A part tomorrow costs X. A part, that same part, a week from now can cost half of that. That same part two weeks from now can cost even a fraction of that. So um, they, they were fighting that trend also so if you kind of looked at their underlying growth in the marketplace and transactions it was 40 percent, but their top line growth rate didn't screen 40 percent or even remotely close to it yet i looked at a oh I, I burned a bunch of hours this weekend on a new spinoff called uh worthington enterprises you know that didn't easily screen either that that thing's worked out really well kind of in the short term and it's really interesting uh industrial kind of conglomerate with equity and into significant, very valuable joint ventures, which you don't see every day on um, in, in, in an operating company. So it, it, it requires a lot of work. <laughs> Just dispel with the notion that these things kind of walk up uh, and lay themselves at your feet and it's really easy and you're going to make a lot of money and make really good risk reward you know,
2: without you know a ton of work. Basically the opposite of passive investing
1: yes <laughs>
0: do you think that the opportunity set in small cap can be captured by a passive or is this something that if an investor is interested in it they need to come to um, you or another active
1: manager in the space in order to get the best returns I think it's a you know you can't knock passive investing I think the fund flows are going to come in the fund flows are absolutely going to come in at small caps at one point I think that's it's 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 inevitable and passive will certainly capture a a large par- portion of that but active Active uh, as well, and I, I don't have the stats on at the tip of my uh, fingers here, but you know I I have seen stats where small cap active um, tends to do better than large cap active versus you know their, um, uh It's, it's a less efficient
2: market, right? There's not as much um, sell side coverage and whatnot.
1: Yeah, absolutely less efficient market. That brings me to another one. You know this is a this is a micro cap name. It's it's my old boss, uh, Mara Gabelli, Gamco Investors. It's kind of a funny one to look at. Trading it like three or four times EBIT. Uh, it's, I'm playing a last share game with my old boss, which is kind of fun. He's buying back as much stock as he can, and I, you know, we talk about small cap stocks. You know, is there a play on small cap stocks? You know, is it possible, Gamco or or Chuck Royce, those firms that they get positive inflows again one day? <laughs> Absolutely, that's going to happen. And they've had negative negative flows these companies for over a decade. And there's not a lot of small cap investors left. There's fewer of them. So it's part of it to me is just, it's just kind of funny to, to see this and contemplate that, yeah, some of these small cap managers actually get positive flows again. And this is a, just a small little way to play that in a public way. Asset managers
0: offer interesting operating leverage because if their strategy does well, um, their bottom line does well. But if their strategy does well, not only do they make money off of their current AOM, but they attract new AOM, which means you kind of get leverage on the upside of course it cuts both ways but it's kind of an interesting uh interesting approach
1: yeah it's cut it's cut both ways in in, in gamco's case so they're a smaller firm than they used to be though of course they have a big block of closed end funds that can't really fully be redeemed ever so that that's a positive but i'm only paying three or four times you know enterprise value to ebit on it which is not you know uh very very demanding and you know like i said he's buying shares back at a at a tremendous rate so this is a super micro cap uh, when, when the, when the Russell 2000 eventually rips, this should rip the same or more. And I really believe there's a, there's a rip around the corner. It could be, it could be 24. Maybe it's sometime in later in 24, or maybe it's 25, but I, I just, I mean, I, I, I could see it, you know, I could see it clearly. It, it's, it's, it's going to happen.
0: Well, Mario, thank you for making the trick downtown to join us for uh, this podcast. This is uh, Grant's Current Yield. Thank you for joining us.